I V M. In a blunt, orchestrated, and unprecedented warning, the civilian government has informed the military leadership of a growing international isolation of Pakistan and sought consensus on several key actions by the state. As a result of the most recent meeting, an undisclosed one on the day of the all parties conference on Monday, at least two sets of actions have been agreed. First, ISI DG General Rizwan Akhtar, accompanied by National Security Advisor Nasir Janjua, is to travel to each of the four provinces with a message for provincial apex committees and ISI sector commanders. The message: Military-led intelligence agencies are not to interfere if law enforcement acts against militant groups that are banned or until now considered off limits for civilian action. General Akhtar's inter-provincial tour has begun with a visit to Lahore. Second, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has directed that fresh attempts be made to conclude the Patan Court investigation and restart the stalled Mumbai attacks-related trials in a Rawalpindi anti-terrorism court. Those decisions taken after an extraordinary verbal confrontation between Punjab Chief Minister Shahbaz Sharif and the ISI DG appear to indicate a high-stakes new approach by the PMLN government. What you just heard was an excerpt from a 2016 news story by journalist Cyril Almeida in the Pakistani newspaper Dawn. The Pakistan government denied the story on three separate occasions and instituted an inquiry into its details. It was reported that the Pakistani army was furious with the story as well as the civilian government. And what followed was that in 2017, the Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was accused by the Supreme Court for not being honest or reliable enough to hold power in the government. In the 2018 elections, Imran Khan swept into power, promising a new Pakistan. Some experts say, however, that this was a soft coup, repeating a pattern in which the Pakistani military has a say in the government's affairs. Welcome to States of Anarchy, a podcast on global affairs and foreign policy. I'm your host, Hamsani Hariharan. Did you know that no Pakistani prime minister has ever completed a full term? The reasons have been many: assassinations, resignations, dismissals, no confidence motions, martial law. The reasons are a plenty and Pakistan's military has featured in many of these cases. Civil military relations are fraught in Pakistan. The book Armed Forces and Their Corporate Interests by Lieutenant General Kamal Dawar notes that the armed forces in Pakistan run over 50 commercial entities worth over 20 billion dollars, ranging from petrol pumps to huge industrial plants, banks, bakeries, schools and universities, hosiery factories, milk dairies, stud farms, cement plants and even housing societies. The military has been linked with jihadists and providing them with resources to carry out violence in neighboring states. Considering all of this, how can we think about civil-military relations in Pakistan? What does it mean for Pakistan's democracy, and how do relations with India feature in this context? My guest for today is one of the most authoritative voices on Pakistan. Ambassador T C Raghavan is the Director General of the Indian Council of World Affairs. He served as the former Indian High Commissioner to Pakistan and Singapore, among many other posts in his career with the Indian Foreign Service. He has also written two books, Attendant Lords and The People Next Door. But before we dive into the conversation with Ambassador Raghavan, let's hear from IVM Podcasts. 
Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you're not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, just a reminder, please do make sure that if you're listening to something that you enjoy, take a screenshot of that, tag us on one of our social media handles, and we'll retweet you or share you or, I don't know, whatever works in the different handles, right? On Cyrus Says this week, Cyrus is joined by Shristi Arya, Director of International Originals at Netflix India. They talk about the upcoming slate of original Indian movies on Netflix and also touch upon the online streaming wars. On Agla Station Adulthood, hosts Ayushi and Ratasha are joined by the cast of Dice Media Show Adulting and they share some stories about growing up. On the Filter Coffee podcast, Karthik is joined by Pradeep Narayan, Research Director at Praxis Institute of Participatory Practices. Pradeep breaks down the prevalence and evils of caste in India today. On a simplified shorty, Chuck and Shrika talk about Pablo Escobar, hippos and cocaine, and the bizarre legacy that connects the three. You don't want to miss this. You can also listen to Chuck on his short solo podcast, The Origin of Things, where he narrates the story about a Hungarian immigrant and yellow journalism, which led to one of the most prestigious accolades of modern history. It's a crossover episode on the Empowering series as Arena is joined by the host of The Habit Coach, Ashton Doctor, and his dad, Wispy Doctor, to talk about the idea of starting Awesome 180. And on Ashton's own show, The Habit Coach, he shares six foundational habits for an awesome life. On Football Should Ball, hosts Gaurav Karthik and Suva bring to you a special episode where they talk about the greatest brawls in football. On Vartha Lab, hosts Akash and Naveen are joined by rapper Onkar Pujari, who goes by the stage name Yeda Anna. The three of them talk about Onkar's journey in the Indian rap scene. On Geek Fruit, Tejas and Zinkar take a look at actors who moonlight as musicians and draw the distinction between vanity projects and music that endures. On Golgappa, Trupti is joined by Deepika Matre, who shares the story of her rollercoaster ride from being a house elf to a jewelry seller to doing stand-up comedy. Also, if you are in control of a brand and you want your brand to have their promos read on our podcast network, do get in touch with us. You can write to us on advertisers at indusbox.com. And with that, let's get you onto your show. Hi, Ambassador Raghavan. Welcome to States of Anarchy. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Uh, so whenever we think about Pakistan, the question of the military is something that keeps popping up time and again with every other prime minister who comes in. What is the difference between civil-military relations that happen in India and how civil-military relations work in Pakistan? Well, there's, uh, the two are entirely different because political cultures in India and Pakistan are fundamentally uh, different and they have been for a very long time. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the, with the kind of states which came into being uh, in 1947. But also to do with subsequent uh, developments. But in very brief, uh, I think there are two or three points which have to be kept in mind when one looks at uh, where the fundamental differences began from. Uh, the first is that Pakistan in 1947 inherited a disproportionately large share uh, of the British Indian Army. As compared to India? As compared to India. In relative terms, uh, as compared to its size, the size of its economy, uh, the, the size of the country, population, etc., uh, Pakistan had a disproportionately large share of the, of the military. And one reason for that was that the Punjab and Baluchistan and to some extent the whole Northwest Frontier province were, were principal uh, recruitment areas for the British Indian. So they had this relatively larger share of the military in a political uh, system which was in a state of total chaos because uh, Pakistan, unlike India, did not inherit uh, any structures of federal government. They had provincial governments in Punjab and Sindh, uh, but they had no federal structures. Uh, 
so that gave almost from the very beginning the military a larger than life presence in Pakistan and thereafter of course there were other factors uh, more contingent conjunctural factors which came into play uh, from the 1950s but they only worked to strengthen the strength which was already there. So Pakistan had four coups uh, in 58, I think 69, 77 and then 99. Well, Pakistan has had what is called a 20-year coup cycle. So 58, 59, 78, 79, 98, 99. And then uh, given that historical background, people talk about... Uh, a soft coup or a creeping coup in 2017-2018. But why is it that the military would take over the civilian government? Weren't there things that traditionally civilian governments have been able to do? Why did the Pakistani military sort of feel the impetus uh, to take control of the government? Well, there were both factors on the, so to say, on the supply side and on the demand side. The supply side, it was the absence of a political consensus amongst the mainstream political uh, class, in the mainstream political class. And therefore, many Pakistanis say this and have written about this. In each case, uh, the coup was really civilian politicians going to the military and saying that things are getting out of hand. Please step in. So part of it was not the military barging in and taking over, but uh, the military being induced in step by step uh, and more or less being requested to take over. Part of it also was uh, the mindset of the Pakistani military, uh, which came to see itself as the guardian of the flame and the ultimate arbiter of uh, Pakistan's interest. Uh, and therefore, there was this feeling that things are going from bad to worse and we have to step in. And is it that Pakistan is a weak state? Is that why civilian governments felt prepared at one time or the other to call them the military? Is that why there was so much chaos in a sense? Well, the absence of political consensus, yes, does lead to a weak state. But it's there, there are many reasons why a particular chain of events begins. I think uh, in part uh, the reason is the uh, fact that institutions have not developed in the way they should have. It's a bit of a chicken and egg thing because the institutions were not developed uh, also because the institutional development was interrupted by coups. But there is a, there was a, there has been historically a weakness of principal institutions of state. Then there are other factors, which is that Punjab has a disproportionately large influence over the entire politics of Pakistan and so on. So of course, it's difficult to pinpoint one particular reason because the situation before 1971 was different. With all the issues uh, concerning the weakness of the state, the role of the military, in fact, boiled down the principle of uh, federalism in Pakistan. A federal Pakistan would have meant a stronger East Pakistan or a more uh, East Pakistan with more powers, which West Pakistan was not prepared to. So that was the situation before 1971. Post-1971, uh, when Pakistan got more you know, homogenized in a sense, consolidated around only the West, it was much more complex because while all these domestic factors were there, there was also a 
regional and international crises. Uh, and uh, you cannot understand uh, the role of the military or coups or Pakistan history without seeing the, the intervention of events such as 1979, which was the revolution in Iran, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, then similarly 1989, which is the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan and the chain of events uh, that began then. Similarly, the global war on terror post 9-11. So these international and regional factors also then had a major influence on the internal Pakistani political evolution. That makes sense. And I think post-1971, there was also sort of a cognizance in Pakistan that uh, despite the war, Pakistan still has to do better. I think even in your book, The People Next Door, you sort of talk about a changeover. Even if they lost the war, there was a sort of hope with Bhutto during yes, these years. Yes. And that gets me wondering why political parties haven't been able to just sort of commandeer more power, whether it's in Chilif, for that matter. Well, that is where, I mean, this is the question which people discuss often in Pakistan, that people often say that if you have a long enough period of uninterrupted uh, civilian uh, rule, howsoever bad uh, it may be, it will have in the medium and long term very good results. Because there, uh, a political consensus or Pakistani politicians understanding that there is no option but to work together on certain fundamentals, that will come about. They say that the problem has been that we've never had a long enough period of uninterrupted uh, civilian there's something to be said for that because the, you know, the regional and the international uh, factors or forces uh, therefore become very important. In 1979, when the Soviet Union uh, invaded Afghanistan and the United States was looking for a frontline state, that enormously increased the role of the Pakistani military uh, because they were able to do things which possibly civilian politicians uh, may not have had the same appetite for. Uh, in terms of the war? In terms of the war, in terms of allowing Pakistani territory to be used for... Uh, because amongst the, the civilians, there would have always been, amongst the political class, there would have always been this sense of apprehension about the blowback effects this would have on Pakistan itself. And I think, therefore, the regional and international factors also have to be taken into account. Uh, and that is one very fundamental difference from, from India. Because, because of our size, we are to a great extent insulated from these. Uh, uh, we are also affected, but we are not affected as much as a smaller country uh, is. It directly also shares uh, a large border with the France That's and across the crisis. And sort of after the end of these regional and international crises during that period till the 90s. Um, how do you think these crises affected the military? What legacy do you think they've had on military force? Well, it's interesting because the conclusions which, uh, which the Pakistani military drew from the situation of the 1980s was somewhat different from what... Uh, you know, Pakistani intellectuals and Pakistani politicians were drawing. Uh, for instance, for the Pakistani military in 1989, the Soviet withdrawal, uh, it led to a feeling of tranquilism. That they have, uh, 
contributed in a very big way to defeating a superpower in their backyard. Uh, the political class or the or many Pakistani intellectuals, in fact, saw it differently. They saw the spread of uh, insecurity and extremism uh, within Pakistan, uh, and they also started pointing to the growing economic gap which was emerging between India and Pakistan. For instance, despite the sense of tranquilism which the Pakistani military had, uh, Pakistani economic indicators from the late 80s and early 90s steadily start going down. India last went to the IMF for a bailout in 1988 or 1989. We've not gone back since, or 1990. Uh, the Pakistanis have had to go back repeatedly. Yeah, about 22 times. Something like that. Or maybe 10 times. Okay, sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, the fact is that uh, the military drew opposite conclusions from actually what was uh, Pakistan happening in Pakistan. There was a decline in economic indicators, there was a flight of capital, there was growing insecurity, uh, there was growth of extremism. But if you see it purely in strategic or political terms, uh, you can see it as a, a victory and a cause for some tranquilism. And I'm guessing Pakistan also received huge amounts of foreign aid during this time because of all of these crises. Well, it didn't because after 1989 and the Soviet withdrawal from Pakistan, from Afghanistan, U.S. interest in uh, Pakistan also dried up. This is what happens when you get involved in superpower games, great power games. That once the interest of the great power uh, changes, you find that your own uh, interests are just uh, not taken into account. Uh, so while the United States had turned a blind eye towards Pakistani nuclear programs through the 19, late 70s, 80s, once the Soviets withdrew, all the sanctions related to nuclear weapons uh, programs were, were put in place. Pakistan found, in fact, that it was cut off from concessional uh, aid flows. And they were left to deal with things on their own. And that, to a great extent, contributed to uh, the crisis which came at the end of the 1990s. Um, there are many reasons why the crisis developed between the civilian politicians and the, uh, and the military. Basically, both Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif realized one thing, that they couldn't go on in this way. Uh, it was too costly for Pakistani interests. And therefore, they needed an environment, a regional environment, you know, which was more stable, which required better relations with neighbors. They couldn't just look at it in strategic and political terms. I think that is one big uh, difference between the military view of things and the civilian view of things. And do you think that's why there was sort of, I don't know if you could classify it as an uptick in relations with India, with both of these leaders? Well, they attempted to. It didn't work. But both Benazir Bhutto and Nawaz Sharif realized, both in the 80s and in the 90s, that it was in Pakistan's interest to have better relations. But uh, neither of them were able to put all the pieces in place to have a policy of that kind which would yield results. Uh, that was one issue in the 1990s. And I guess at the end of the day, the military survival and its need in that sense in state affairs depends on threats that come from the environment. And India would sort of be a natural threat for the country. But that factor is there. 
But there's also another factor to be kept in mind, uh, which is that it's not as if everyone in the military wants bad relations with India. After all, there have been periods of good relations when the military has been charged in Pakistan. The problem is that the military doesn't trust the politicians, and the politicians don't trust the military. And because there's this internal gulf or this structural divide, then India becomes a kind of a you know shuttlecock between the two, uh, which is why progress is so uh, so difficult, and also when it takes place, why it's so fragile. That's a powerful statement, and. When you think about this period, this is also when sort of the military jihadi complex is something that starts to be achieved. Explain to me how that's going to happen the military Well, the origins of it are really to do with the jihad in Afghanistan after 1979. And some people in Pakistan's intelligence apparatus, uh, realizing that they could make themselves indispensable to the United States and also inflict some damage on the Soviet forces in Afghanistan by using uh, uh, religious uh, schools and religious madrasas as recruitment grounds for creating these uh, quasi-paramilitary auxiliaries, uh, you know, which were really the Mujahideen, which were then used to some effect uh, against the Soviet uh, forces. Once that succeeded, and it's not as if it succeeded as a military option, but it succeeded as a political option because in the end the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan because they were preoccupied with what was happening within the Soviet Union itself. But the fact that the Soviets were infected this uh, major military defeat in Afghanistan meant that uh, this option appeared to many Pakistan to have uh, you know, many collateral advantages, especially towards realizing political objectives in so they thought that the template developed in Afghanistan could be used against India, Jammu and Kashmir. And but state-sponsored terrorism has a long history even before the war in Afghanistan, doesn't it? Particularly with respect to the insurgency in Kashmir and things like that. Well, the insurgency in Kashmir began in 1989. That more or less coincides with the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and certainly there was this mood of tribalism in the Pakistani military especially, but also among many civilians, that if we have defeated a superpower in Afghanistan, uh, why can't we liberate Kashmir? Uh, and, uh, and this template which we developed uh, in uh, Afghanistan, we will use effectively against India. Uh, now, because it coincided with a number of other dysfunctionalities in Pakistan. What happened was that this jihadi complex or the spread of extremism uh, took on much deeper roots and spread much more than possibly uh, the people behind it had anticipated. Uh, so much so that about 10-15 years later, it had become a major issue for their, themselves where you had these uh, extremist and jihadi groups which were less interested in Jammu and Kashmir, which they saw as far away, none of their business, and more interested in taking over parts of Pakistan. You know, and that is what led to the Tehreek-e Taliban emerging with such a force. And then you also have uh, bombings, you also have shootings within parts of Pakistan. Oh, yes. There are many people who say that, people have written about it, that between 2006 and 2017, that 10 years, 
was the worst period in Pakistan's history after 1971, when the, the entire structure of the Pakistani state appeared to have question marks. And don't you think the military jihadi complex is sort of inherently destabilizes civil military relations as well? Because when you have terrorists who are within your state, they will fundamentally look at disrupting normal state of affairs and that sort of weakens the civilian government as well. Well, I don't think, in my view, there are different views of this. Okay. I don't think uh, the military uh, jihadi complex is a part of the Pakistani state. Uh, I don't think any Pakistani military officer thinks these jihadis whom he uses or their army uses as an instrument of policy is their equal in any sense. They are instruments to be used and discarded. So it is not a part of the state uh, in the sense we understand it. They are by, they are by no means uh, a partner. They are instruments which these people have fashioned, which the military has fashioned because they found it uh, had numerous advantages for them. But they were no more than instruments. And the tensions which arise between the jihadis and the military is precisely because of this. Because uh, the Tehrik Taliban people felt that these military guys are using us for their own aims. Uh, but we have our own aims. Uh, so it's not a complex in that sense. Because uh, it's not a part of the state. And there are people who say that no, they are very much part of the same system. My view is slightly different. That's fair. Uh, but how do you think, sort of, 20 years post that, uh, that it's affecting uh, Pakistani politics today, that's affecting Pakistan society? Well, the situation now is very confused. You see, in 2015, 16, 17, the Pakistani military took major steps against these jihadists. So much so, they used uh, firepower and airpower to an extent uh, which nobody had anticipated against the Tariq and Taliban. To a great extent, uh, they were successful in this. But they are still left with the problem of what to do with these groups which they have spawned and cultivated for all these years. And you can see them trying various things. One thing which they have tried is to somehow get them into politics in the hope that they would moderate them. But that hasn't quite uh, worked because that has also led to a great amount of outrage in the rest of Pakistan uh, society and amongst other politicians. They have also realized that these groups are uh, quite difficult to handle. While uh, they were quite successful in handling them in the past, it's getting more and more difficult. They also face an environment in which uh, uh, there is a great deal of cynicism and frustration with the license Pakistan has allowed to these groups at the international level. So there is a great deal of flux. There is no clear uh, position. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, uh, they have to attend to these uh, factors. They have to somehow domesticate these groups again. On the other hand, they have to also deal with them, especially in Afghanistan, where the American expectation is that they can help them reach a deal with the Taliban. So it's quite a complex situation in many ways. And uh, the fundamental issue is also, of course, that 
it is for Pakistan to realize that it can't go on in the old ways. They can't uh, expect to use these uh, extremists and militants for political objectives and then expect that things will go back to normal after that. Obviously, you're going to have some externalities, positive or negative, that affect the society because their people are not just instruments. Uh, no, and they're ideologically charged and motivated. So, uh, and they have their own agendas. So, I think that realization one doesn't know what extent it has developed in Pakistan, how strong it is, uh, and how the government will deal with this in the future. Right now, I think their future appears somewhat uh, not something very optimistic because there seems to be a shortage of ideas on how to deal with this situation. So, I think right now they have. I would say that the situation is not very interesting. We've spoken a little bit about the soft coup earlier. Uh, how do you think that the election last year with Imran Khan coming to the fore, how do you think, has that changed Pakistani politics in any way? Has it changed the way military does things generally within the country? Well, it's, you know, one is the enhanced role of the military. Uh, right now. There are many examples of that, including the fact that the chief of army staff visit, accompanies the prime minister and he uh, goes to have meetings with the president of the US. But there's also, a, uh, I think that the, the military factor is there, but there's also a, a much greater intensity to the intra, I mean, to the infighting within the political class as a whole. You have two prime ministers in jail. Uh, you have uh, virtually every other civilian politician being, uh, you know, being with a vendetta against them in the name of accountability. So that is not a good sign for a country, given Pakistan's history, for a country emerging out of so much political turmoil, to have a situation where every opposition politician is. Uh, target of a major political vendetta, it shows that even the small steps Pakistan political class had taken in the first decade of this century, there's been a regression since that. Uh, there has been one movement that I um, looked at sort of with some hope, the question that was, how do you think that's evolved? Do you think it's going to make any sort of difference in terms of the democracy? Well, I don't know. It's, I think too early to say what kind of impact it will have. But clearly, what has happened is in that in the in the Khyber province, uh, I think people are just fed up with having been the front line of the front line, where the Pakistani military and intelligence uh, apparatuses thought they could do what they want. This is very much a civil society reaction uh, to that. That why did you uh, give this license to terrorist groups and extremist groups, and now to deal with them, you are uh, inflicting huge costs on the uh, on the entire population. So then it is the, it's a it's a, it's an outcome of uh, that kind of frustration uh, at the short-sighted policies which the Pakistani government has followed, especially in the frontier regions. How much of an impact it will have is very difficult to say. Unless uh, we see, uh, I don't think uh, 
provincial movements of this kind have a major impact on Pakistan as a whole unless they dovetail or unless they join with larger national level uh, movements. Of that, there is no sign as yet. And that sort of again brings us back to political consensus and that's right. how our parties. And the capacity to forge alliances. Mm. All right, this is my last question for you, sir. If for someone who's interested more about Pakistan, about civil military patients in Pakistan, uh, are there books or resources that you would recommend for them? Well, there are many books, uh, uh, but I think it's important that uh, people uh, try to read what Pakistanis say about it rather than going by scholarship from outside. Because uh, scholarship from outside often misses the main point, and uh, there is a great deal of uh, discussion about this uh, internally within Pakistan. So, the extent that one can access that, the more enriching study will be. The problem is that it's not easy for Indian scholars to study Pakistan. Because you're then, you're, you're basically studying it in the abstract since you can't travel there, interact with people, research over there. So to that extent, there are limitations on how much scholarship we can develop in Pakistan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of States of Anarchy. You can't use a sword to mend torn clothes and hopefully that's something that the Pakistan military will find out as well. If you want to read more about Pakistan's civil-military relations, I do suggest reading more voices from Pakistan, as Ambassador Raghavan had suggested. From my end, I've attached a bunch of resources for you in the episode description, so go on and check it out. If you enjoyed what you listened to or violently disagreed with what I said, you can reach out to me on Twitter at the rate Hamsini H or on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. You can listen to States of Anarchy not only on the IVM podcast app, but also on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you get your podcast from. We'll be back next Tuesday. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Varma and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind, but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Are you constantly seeking happiness? Wondering how to make the most of every day? How not to let your inhibitions stop you from achieving your goals? It's now time to get your A-game on. It's time to unlock your true potential. 
Tune in to the empowering series with me, Zarina Poonawala, to feel empowered in all genres of life. From behavioral skills to management skills, from health to relationships, from mental well-being to emotional well-being, and of course, your finances. I've got you covered with these tips and tricks from me, Zarina, and true life stories from my amazing guests. You're bound to bring your purest to the table. Tune in to the empowering series with Zarina Poonawala every Thursday on the IVM podcast app, website, or wherever you listen to podcasts.